Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from Pastor Don Brock. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. I have a real good friend that um, one of the things that we do is we go to air shows when we have the opportunity. And usually if one can't go, the other one doesn't go. So we just enjoy doing that together. And, and uh, yes, my family will not go with me. Um, I made them all go one time. And every one of them said, okay, we've done that. We're not doing it again. And, uh, and I said, you know, I tell Mary, I said, why, why don't you like these air shows? They're amazing. She said, well, I might have to see somebody crash right in the field. And she got a point because that does happen. In fact, one of a uh, young person that was in my youth group in North Augusta became a stunt pilot in air shows. And he actually about four or five years ago died in an air show in Atlanta and just crashed right in the field. And uh, so that does happen. But anyway, this friend of mine, we're, we're planning on going in April to Buford. Uh, they, at the Marine Station there, the air station, they have an amazing air show they do every other year. And this is that year. They've got the Blue Angels coming. And the last time we went, there were four of us that went. And so my friend and our two other friends, we, we uh, went out to eat after their air show. We were just sitting there, and all of a sudden, he said, you know, I know I'm a nerd, and I, but I embrace my nerdiness. And we all just busted out laughing and said, yep, we agree with you. You are a nerd. And, uh, but, you know, I've never thought anything funny about that. I just said, that's who you are. He said, well, I just want you to know I embrace it. I said, well, good. And, uh, and I, so I, I want you today, I want you to embrace your ordinariness. We're just ordinary people. And if you're nerdy, well, then embrace that. Whatever you are, you just embrace the fact that you are an ordinary person. In fact, it's usually the ordinary people that God most likely will reveal himself through. And, and um, today, we're starting a series about David, King David. And today, I'm, I'm going to go against some really cherished American myths that we have, and maybe you've bought into some of them without even realizing it, this idea that I have to be the best, I have to achieve more, uh, recognition validates me. We're gonna attack the core of that, and uh, we're, we're gonna start in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're gonna pick up David's story there. Um, the story of David uh, is about Israel's search for a king. And, uh, and they were looking, you know, they, they wanted a king. They kept saying they wanted a king. You know, apparently God wasn't enough of a king for them. They wanted a physical king that they could see. And uh, so they chose Saul. That turned out to be a big mistake. And so now what we're going to see is, you know, God is searching. He's, he's already appointed this next king. And uh, we're going to see how he goes about choosing this king. And so here uh, we begin in, in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel is in deep distress because of the sins of King Saul. And uh, Saul turned out to be not anything what Samuel had hoped for. And um, he looked the part, but he wasn't the part. 
And, and Samuel had this vision of a king that would be faithful to God and faithful to his people, a king that would love and trust God, uh, a king that would teach the people to be the same. That's the vision that Samuel had, a king that would use his power to bless people and to serve the people rather than the other way around, wanting people to bless them and wanting the people to serve them, uh, a king that would uh, not have com uh, command the allegiance of people, but rather would win it from them by the way he lived, and uh, a man that was willing to die for them instead of expecting them to die for him. And so when Saul turned out to be anything but that, Samuel was really depressed. And because Samuel had high hopes for Saul, and they were shattered. Um, and so we, let's begin in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to start reading with verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough about Saul. Get over it. It's basically what God is saying to him. I have rejected him as the king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. For and find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected, God has selected, one of his sons to be my king, the king of Israel. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And I find this a little out of character for Samuel. Samuel, he's a... I'm telling you what, he's kind of like the Chuck Norris of prophets. And uh, in fact, in a minute, we're going to see where people got a little nervous when he came around and, uh, and said, and so God said, take a heifer with you and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you which one of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived to Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. Remember, he Chuck Norris of the prophets? And he's there saying, what's wrong? They asked, do you come in peace? Or are you going to do a roundhouse kick on our face? I mean, are you coming here to mess with us? and get? Are you upset with us? Is God out to get us? I mean, you know, the, when the prophet shows up, you don't know if it's going to be good news or bad news. So Samuel is supposed to go to Bethlehem and offer some ritual sacrifice, but he's got another agenda, and that's to choose the king. And so all the people, whenever there was an event like this, they would all gather kind of like in a football stadium, except they would have had this sheep racing herding arena. And uh, so that's where they would have gone, uh, their kind of rodeo place. And, uh, <clears throat> and Samuel was supposed to make sure that Jesse and his boys were there. And so, I mean, little kids in Israel wanted to grow up and be like Samuel. They all had Samuel action figures to play with. So verse five, yes, Samuel replied, I'm coming in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So purify yourselves and come to me to the sacrifice. And, and then Samuel performed the purification. So there's a purification process you went through that was all laid out in scripture. And then they would come to the sacrifice. So Samuel actually performed the purification for Jesse and his sons. 
So obviously that got everybody's attention. It's kind of like, well, wait a minute. He's over here actually purifying this. And, you know, Bethlehem's not a big place. So everybody knows everybody's business. And when Jesse, uh, when Samuel goes to Jesse's home and he starts the purification process for the sacrifice, that got everybody's attention. Um, so you concentrated yourself, you got yourself ready. And, uh, and so the word probably began to spread that this was more than a sacrifice. There's got to be something else going on here. And then it gets around that maybe one of the sons of Jesse is going to be the next anointed as the next king. And so everybody's, you know, people don't know what's going on. So everybody's doing their best to come look and they're trying to look kingly. You know, maybe I'm the one that'll be chosen. So verse six, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, I'm really bad with Old Testament names, so just forgive me. Samuel, pretty easy. Um, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height. Didn't you learn your lesson from Saul? I mean, Saul was a tall, good looking guy. He looked the part, but he turned out to be anything but the part. And so Samuel, he's sitting there going, well, this guy looks the part. And God says, don't judge by the appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't, this is important. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. That's still true today. People judge by outward appearance. Aren't you glad we don't have that problem anymore? We do that all the time, right? We look at people and we size them up and we make decisions about people just by their appearance. And have you ever done that and then later on get to know the person and your opinion, your perception of them was turned out to be totally wrong after you got to know them for either the good or for bad? I mean, your initial perception based on their looks turned out to be nothing correct about that at all. And, and so here, here's what you need to write down. This is the heart of the message, the passage. God never looks at what you and I look at. He looks at the heart. Back in Samuel, 1 Samuel in, in verse 7 there, it says, The Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You got to write that down and you got to remember that. God never looks at someone and says, wow, nice body. I love your haircut. And those clothes, those clothes you wear, man, you said, I bet you've got a good looking resume too. And... Um, and he looks, but where does he look? He looks at the people's heart. I tell you what, resumes are so deceptive. You can make them whatever you want them to make them. A friend of mine used to be in charge uh, of the, um, the people that graduated from my seminary. Uh, that She was in charge of their records. So when churches would call to check out to make sure that a, somebody actually got a degree from there, she told me, she says, not a week goes by that I get a call from a church to verify somebody's resume 
that either the person never attended here, but they said they did, or did not graduate, but on their resume they said, yeah, I went to Southwestern, and yeah, I got a, doc a doctor degree from there. He said, they never even attended here. I said, wow. And yet churches will hire them all the time because they won't check them out. That's sad. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The question is, is that good news or bad news for you? If God is looking at your heart, is that good news or bad news for you? Because that's where God's looking. So you've got to start asking yourselves more questions about your heart than your outward appearance. So before we move on, how much time do you really spend thinking about what's in your heart? Do you think about what's there? What's really there? The deception, the lies, the misplaced values? So here's a question you need to be asking. If you spent more time on your exterior than you do on your heart, whose opinion do you really care about? Whose opinion do you really value? Well, you value the opinions of others and not the opinion of God. We have to look at our heart because that's where God's looking. In fact, a great prayer that's um, kind of a dangerous prayer, but if you really mean it, it's a gutsy prayer. Lord, search my heart. Show me if there's anything there that is contrary to your word. Anything there that um, you don't like. And every time I've prayed that prayer, I've never had God come back. Oh, no, you're doing great, Don. Keep it up. You got it all down pat. Never have I heard that. <laughs> he said, yeah, we need to work on this attitude over here. Yeah, you know what? You've really started relying on this instead of me. You really put more confidence in yourself in this area than you do in me. There's always been something that God wants to work on. So how much time do you spend thinking about your heart and what God thinks about it? So it's a good thing that he didn't choose this very first son. You know, just a few chapters later in 1 Samuel, it turns out that uh, uh, Eliab is critical, arrogant, fearful, and doesn't trust God. That's who he turned out to be. Now, he would have been a horrible king. Looked the part, but wasn't the part. Verse 8, then Jesse told his son uh, Abadi, Abba, let's see, Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. That guy should have been rejected just because of his name. I mean, you know. How do you say that? King, King Abadabadu, Abadu, what? Everybody would get his name wrong. You got to reject him just for that. Verse 9, next Jesse summoned uh, Shemiah, but Samuel said, neither this is the one that the Lord has chosen. 
In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said, are these all the sons you have? Did I misunderstand God or something? And then Jesse said, no, they're still the youngest. Well, where is he? I mean, didn't I tell you to bring all your sons here and there's one you haven't brought? He said, well, he's, he's the runt. I mean, he's the youngest. He's out in the fields walking the sheep and the goats. Nobody else wants that job. He has to do it because he's the youngest. And so Samuel, I think, was getting a little miffed, and he said, send for him at once. And then he says, this is, maybe he's just a grumpy old you know, prophet at this point. I don't know, but he's like, we will not sit down or eat until he arrives. We're not going to sit back. You're going to do this right now. We're just going to stand and wait. You should have done this from the get-go, but you didn't. So now the youngest, this word, Hebrew word for the youngest, some Hebrew scholars say using this word here carries a condemnation of being the runt, the youngest, and the key word here, insignificant. Insignificant. Physically unimpressive. Skinny. And he's keeping the sheep, the world's worst job in Israel. And, uh, and so the point here that's being made is that David has nothing that makes him even considering uh, considerable uh, to be considered as the king. Hmm. Even his own father didn't even think of that possibility. How about that? His own dad didn't believe in him. So, they're sitting there, verse 12. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark. That's the way some translations say it. Some use the translation word ruddy, which ruddy can mean um, redheaded. It can also mean dirty, disheveled. Not that I'm saying redheads or that. That's not what it's saying. But that, that uh, they can smell like a pasture, which he would. Not pastor, a pasture. <laughs> But didn't he have pretty eyes? <laughs> He's dark, handsome, and he had beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. The runt of the litter. The smallest one. Nothing ex exceptional about him. The point is, God doesn't look, David did not look like a king. He didn't look like a man of war. He looks like a little runt kid that smells like sheep. Verse 13. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil that he had brought and he anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came power. Oh, listen to this. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel was done. He returned back home. So here, here's some lessons from this story. David was ordinary. Just ordinary. That's the whole point of this story. 
You say, but wait, didn't David's life turn out to be extraordinary? Well, yeah, but after the spirit of the Lord came upon him powerfully, that's when things started happening. For then, he's just an ordinary little runt kid. And uh, yeah, he had that David and Goliath thing and he wrote the Psalms and he did all that and he would become one of them. He became this gold standard for what a king was like. But um, those were his result of the spirit of God coming upon him. So the point that the spirit came upon him here in chapter 16, he was, before that happened, he was nothing extraordinary. In fact, when he killed Goliath, he was still really ordinary. He was still keeping the sheep. And he went to his brothers, bringing them some Chick-fil-A lunches while they were at a battle. And, um, and so they're sitting there, and that's when he did that thing with Goliath. But up to, he was not thought of much back then at all. David became extraordinary, not because he was anything extraordinary about him, but because of the spirit of God that was upon him. And the reason David had access to the power of an extraordinary God was because David didn't think that he was extraordinary in himself. See, if David had become all about himself, I think God's spirit would have left him because that's exactly what happened to Saul. Saul became all about himself. And the Bible says the Spirit of God left him. God rejected him because Saul was all about Saul. We have a culture that actually tells us the opposite. Everywhere we turn, we have this self-help culture which tries to make you think that you are extraordinary. Even at church, we, we sometimes repeat some of these cultural lies in positive, encouraging Christianese forms. One pastor that I read gave these four cultural lies that the world teaches um, that the church sometimes parrots. One lie is this. You are special. There's no one like you. That, you know, that doesn't sound bad. I mean, you are unique and you're like a snowflake. No, you know, no one like is like any other. You're a one of a kind. And there's a fraction of truth in that, that you're a unique fingerprint, a unique DNA. But other than that, you're really not unique. You're ordinary. You're made from the same stuff that everybody else is made from. And uh, yes, you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God and God knows you by name and, and has a specific plan for your life. But in another sense, you're not set apart from everybody else or unique. Show me in the Bible where it says that you're to set yourself apart to, in order to puff up your ego by taking, talking about your uniqueness. It's not in scripture. Yes, you're set apart to live a certain way, a different way, but not about you and your ego. That's not in scripture. 
fact, the scripture warns against that. Yes, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The book of James says Elijah, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, was a man with a nature just like ours, ordinary. But he had the spirit of God upon him. So this whole culture says, discover your uniqueness and then takes an ounce of truth of that and then mixes it with pure narcissism. And that gets Christians in trouble all the time. When you, when you focus on your uniqueness, it is so easy to become narcissistic about that. And then you really become very unusable by God. But when you bring God your ordinariness, I'm just an ordinary person. And what little I am and what little I have, I give it to holy God. That's when things change. That's when things are different. But the church sometimes have taken a little bit of uh, sounds like truth. And we've mixed it up with some other Bible verses. And we've created something that's not godly. Another, another truth that the world teaches that the church has adopted some is you are your work. We define people by their profession. David was a shepherd. He had the lowest job there was. You're not defined by your work. Some say, well, you're defined by your network. You know, the people that you know. That's what really defines you. No, you're not. Well, well, you're defined by your net worth. And, and they think, well, you know, what you've accumulated, what you have, and, and, and where you live and all that, that's what really defines you. No, it doesn't. Not in God's eyes. Those are all lies that we've bought into. Oh, here's one. God needs you. Church has bought into that idea. You've got something special that God needs, and unless you do it, it won't get done. Newsflash, God does not need you. He does not need me. When he started this whole creation thing, we weren't there. He didn't need us. And so he builds his kingdom with shepherds. God gets along just fine without us. But he has chosen to let us be a part of his kingdom. And I want to tell you something. God does have a purpose and plan for your life. But if you choose not to do it, he'll find somebody else. He really will. I wonder how many stories are not in the Bible about people that God called to do something extraordinary and they said no. We just hear about the stories of the ones that said yes. Oh, there is one that we do know. The rich young ruler that came and said, what do I, must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And he listed off all of his resume and uh, all of his credentials. And, and I looked the part, I act the part. And Jesus said, yeah, you're doing really good, except one thing. I want you to take everything you've got and give it away. And the guy turned and walked away. Now, Jesus cared about that person. In fact, the Bible says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. Not because of who he thought he was. Not because who that rich guy thought he was. Jesus loved him because he loves us. 
He chooses to. And that guy turned and walked away. And you know what? You know what we'll find out about him later? Nothing. He never brought up again in Scripture. Imagine the storyline that would be in Scripture about that guy if he had said yes. So, yeah, you're unique. But God doesn't need you. Christianity is not about God making much out of you. Christianity is letting you make, is you making much out of God. That God saved you. That everything about your life is pointing to God. We got through this difficult time because of God. We, we faced this challenge and the Holy Spirit led us through this. We got through it. Another lie that we can buy into sometimes is that God wants you to chase your dreams. God wants you to trace, chase your dreams. Your dreams are unique. They're your, you, and God has put your dreams there. Well, I want to tell you, if you think that chasing your dreams is finding the real you and, and that's what will make you happy, I don't think Jesus probably didn't dream about, oh, I get to go to the cross and die a horrible death. In fact, he really didn't want that. I don't think Paul dreamed about, oh, I get to be shipwrecked three times and bitten by a poisonous snake. That's going to be fun. I'm going to have my head cut off in prison. Looking forward to that. No. They did things because that's what God called them to do. Jesus said, your will be done. Paul said, your will be done. So it's not about you chasing your dreams. In fact, being a follower of Christ means often that you die to your dreams, not achieve them. You let go of your dreams to take on what God has for you. Because I want to tell you, the dreams God has for you are far bigger, far better, more fulfilling than any scrawny little dream you can come up with for yourself. And when you get to that place where you say, it's not about me, it's not about my dreams, it's not about my achievements, it's about what God has for me, then watch out. It's going to be a wild journey. It's going to be amazing. So here's the point. You are ordinary. You know, Christianity really is a bunch of nobodies who are worshiping a great big somebody. That's who we are. I'm a nobody apart from Jesus. Here's a second lesson I want us to learn today from 1 Samuel. Because David was ordinary, God could do extraordinary things through David. Verse 13 again. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. All the great things about David's life began to happen as the spirit of God came upon him. And what makes God's people great throughout scripture is when the spirit is upon them. I mean, what made Pharaoh take a foreign criminal and make him the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. Talking about Joseph there. In the book of Genesis, it says the spirit of God was upon him. 
So that's why. Or what enabled Gideon to take 300 ordinary men and defeat the entire Midianite army of 100,000 men with not one single casualty, well, it's because the Spirit of God was upon him. How did Samuel kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey? The Spirit of God was upon him. What gave the early church the power to defy the Roman Empire and, and, and uh, to testify boldly about Jesus Christ that would end up costing them their lives. Well, Acts 4 says it's when the Holy Spirit came upon them and it was so powerful that it shook the room that they were in and that they went out and they turned the world upside down. In fact, Zechariah summed up all the great and powerful people in the Bible by saying this in chapter 4, verse 6. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. When you pray to receive Christ, the spirit of holy God came inside of you. It's not another event you've got to look for. He's there. So embrace your ordinariness. Only one person in your life can be seen as great. Only one person in your life can be the somebody. Are you willing for that to be God and not you? Are you willing to do that? Third thing, God made David extraordinary and he did it in the pasture. In fact, God used the pasture to prepare the king. Chuck Swindoll uh, said three words characterized David's time in the pasture. Because you see, after... He was anointed by Samuel. The Holy Spirit came upon him then, but he went right back out keeping sheep. And so here are the three words that Chuck Swindoll said. One was obscurity. No one paid any attention to him. He was out there alone with the sheep and with God, God's spirit. Monotony. What'd you do today, David? Oh, I moved the sheep from here to there. Practice my slingshot a little bit. Um, when I get bored, I play the harp and write a few songs, some contemporary Christian songs, it turns out. <laughs> a few months ago, a lion and a bear came, and I killed him with my bare hands. Did anybody see that? No. <laughs> Monotony. And then there was a reality. In the pasture, God developed David's skills. That slingshot thing, that would come in handy later. Turned out putting a stone in the middle of the forehead of Goliath was no big deal if you learned how to do it on a bear and a lion first. The harp, David became the world's most famous songwriter ever. He developed David's courage. David learned humility because he had to take on a dirty job like keeping sheep. I think that had a lot to do with um, making him such a good king. He learned patience. God taught him to wait and to trust. In fact, in Psalms 78, 72, this says, this is talking about David here. He cared for them with a true heart 
and led them with skillful hands. All that came from the pasture, his pasture time, out with the sheep. Those things, the upright heart, skillful hand, that came from a pasture, not a palace. So don't waste your pasture time. Don't waste your suffering time. That's where you learn a lot about God. One last thing. Jesus would be the truly ordinary, extraordinary. Only one person in your life can be seen as great. Only one person can be a somebody. Is that going to be you or is it going to be Jesus? That's got to be your choice. You get to choose. Rich young ruler chose himself because he liked his status too much, his reputation. He worked too hard to build that resume, to give it all up. His identity was defined by what he had instead of who he was. Are you willing to give up all that you have so that Jesus becomes the somebody in your life? God, all my abilities, all my skills, everything I've done, everything I have, it's nothing compared to you. I, I give all that up. I embrace that I'm just an ordinary person, but I want the Spirit of God to be upon me. And I want you to remove anything in my life that prevents that. And that's a gutsy prayer. That's a challenging prayer. In fact, are you willing to pray that right now? Lord, search me. Know my heart. Know the things that um, are contrary to you. Show me the lies that I've bought into that seem right, but they're really wrong because they're contrary to you. Lord, become the somebody in my life. Become the somebody. And as long as you're glorified, it doesn't matter what you do or choose to use me for. That's a gutsy prayer. Now, as we pray, I'm always at the front. If you want to pray, come and pray with me. If you want to do some business with God, let's do business with God. Whatever God's put on your heart, let's pray.